I told our church this morning, it's kind of fitting today with uh, what David just sang, but when I was first uh, in my first full-time pastorate, <clears throat> the music was interesting to say the least, uh, probably uh, more to be desired. But um, anyway, we had unique times back then. We had three churches that would get together on um, Sunday evenings on the fifth Sunday of each you know, time that a month had fifth five Sundays. And we'd have a singing. People would get together, choirs would come, churches would gather together, three churches, and we would all sing different uh, choirs would sing. And uh, there was one particular church where we would gather, and the lady could not sing on key at all. And uh, it was really, really bad. And uh, so there was on one occasion she came and she was leading, and I had to preach after it. And the lady said, who was leading the music, she said, how do you preach after that? And I said, it's a challenge. It really is difficult. But, you know, you're blessed here with David and Miss Pat, and now your congregation singing so wonderfully. What a blessing to have this, isn't it? I mean, it is such a beautiful thing to have redeemed people singing. You know, one of the things we're going to do when we finally get to heaven is sing a lot. And uh, I'm thankful that probably I'll be able to sing on key. <laughs> That'd be really good. I'm looking forward to that. But uh, one thing I want to say before we look at the Word of God today, and that is this. It's uh, my time up here is coming quickly to an end. Uh, God has blessed this church, and God is growing this church. And uh, Mark and Allie have been a blessing in our lives. And I'm looking forward to the day when finally he is completely and fully ordained and takes the role here as lead pastor and elder. And as God grows the church, and um, I'm kind of not looking forward to the time that I don't come up here much anymore. Uh, I am going to come up here more just to hear him preach. I love to hear Mark preach. I love to hear him expound the Word of God. And what I'm hearing him do today, even with parents and fathers and the women getting together in their Bible studies, I mean, what a wonderful privilege to be a part of this ministry here in Rock Hill so I'm praying for you. Our church is praying for you. We're asking God to continue to grow this church and bless it for the purposes of his kingdom. And that not only there would be many families who would come and join this church, but there would be many souls that would be saved. And the kingdom would advance and God would be honored in all that is done through Grace Covenant Church. All right, so let's turn in our Bibles today to James chapter 3. James chapter 3, we're going to be looking together at a passage that... We are studying in our church, going through the book of James. This is one of those very practical books that gives us great insight into our own personal Christian life. Many believe that this book was written not only as a practical guide to the Christian life, but also as a means of showing the true fruit of what true conversion is or true salvation is. Uh, one of the themes you find is chapter 2, verse 14, where James talks about faith and works that genuine faith, true saving faith, produces works. Or as we've often said, that someone who is truly saved will produce fruit. Or some have said, you will know them by their fruits. So as we move through different sections in James, we're finding that there are certain elements here that help us to see and diagnose in a real definitive way as to whether or not we are truly converted and know the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord. One of those is biblical wisdom or wisdom in general. 
uh, whether or not you have wisdom. And uh, that is what James is discussing here in chapter 3, verse 13 and following. Let me read the word of God for our hearing. James chapter 3, verse 13 through 18. The word of God says, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his, wise, that his works are done in meekness and wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly and sensual and demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. But wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality, without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. The last few years have been a vivid example of what a culture looks like whenever it does not have wisdom. More and more we are seeing what it looks like to see the seeds of secularism and atheism grow and produce the fruit of a people who have no fear of God whatsoever. The Apostle Paul talked about this in Romans chapter 3 when he concluded his discussion on the depravity of man. His final conclusion was a quotation from the Psalms which says, There is no fear of God before their eyes. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This is the root cause of a society's decline, and it is the root cause of the evil practices that we see. Psalm 36 says, as the psalmist declares the transgression of the wicked, he says this, There is no fear of God before his eyes, for he flatters himself in his own eyes, When he finds out his iniquity and when he hates, the words of his mouth are wickedness and deceit. He has ceased to be wise and to do good. He devises wickedness on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good and he does not abhor evil. The reason why the psalmist states this is because the man who finds himself In a position that he does not fear God, he will lie awake at night in his bed devising evil plans to do his wickedness, and he does not abhor evil. And the reason is because he has no fear of God. A person who has no fear of God does not fear sin. A person who has no fear of God will have no need or feel no need to shun sin. A society that has abandoned all fear of God will plunge headfirst into all kinds of evil and debauchery that any depraved mind can imagine. Where there is no fear of God, there is no wisdom. And where there is no wisdom, there is no salvation. And where there is no salvation or a saved people, there is no purity and no holiness. Only evil. In fact, Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. In other words, you can't even begin to have wisdom without the fear of the Lord. Job 28.28 says, And to man he said, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to depart from evil is understanding. Proverbs 8.13 says, The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. 
Proverbs 16, 6 says, and by the fear of the Lord, one departs from evil. The conclusion of the matter found in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13 and 14 says, fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God is willing to bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. Albert Martin, who wrote a very important book entitled The Forgotten Fear, Where Have All the God-Fearers Gone?, had this to say about the fear of God. He said, and I quote, The fear of God is a massive and dominant theme in Scripture. It is also a theme that was very prominent both in the thinking and in the preaching of our spiritual forefathers. When our spiritual forefathers desired to describe someone who was characterized by genuine godliness, they would often call him a God-fearing man. This designation reflected the fact that men realized the fear of God was nothing less than the soul of godliness. Did you catch that? Let me read that again. This designation reflected the fact that men realized the fear of God was nothing less than the soul of godliness. Take away the soul from the body and all you have left in a few days is a stinking carcass. Take away the fear of God from any profession of godliness and all is left is a stinking carcass of Phariseeism, barren religiosity, and calculated hypocrisy. Jeremiah testified to the fact that we all should fear God. He said in Jeremiah chapter 10, Who would not fear you, O Lord, King of the nations? Indeed, it is your due. For among all the wise men of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. It is he who made the heavens and the earth with his power, who established the world by his wisdom and by his understanding, he has stretched out the heavens. The Old Testament phrase that you often read, fear the Lord or those who fear the Lord, is equivalent to trusting in God. If you were a God-fearer, that meant that you actually trusted in the Lord. In the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 8, Moses said, Now Israel, what does the Lord God require of you but to fear the Lord your God and to walk in his ways and to love him and to serve him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul? It is essentially taught in the Old Testament that you and I should be God-fearers. Also in the New Testament, it is no different. The Gentiles that converted to Judaism were often called God-fearers. They were the ones who feared the God of Israel, and they followed after him and trusted in him. Cornelius, in the book of Acts, if you remember, was said that he was a righteous man, a God-fearing man. Also in Uh, Acts chapter 17, verse 17, Paul the Apostle was talking about the Gentiles that he would discuss and talk with in the synagogues, and he called those Gentiles there God-fearing Gentiles. It is important to understand that even in the New Testament, these who feared God feared more than just the God of Israel, but they became followers of Jesus Christ. If you were a true person who feared God that meant that you also feared his son Jesus Christ this is something that is foreign to much of what we hear today especially in our culture but even more 
in the church. Very rarely do you hear topics or sermons on the topic of fearing God. I've heard it discussed, but often what happens is the term fear is watered down to only mean reverence. And there's nothing wrong with reverence. In fact, we should all have reverence for God and the things of God, no doubt about that. But there is a healthy fear even of the believer of God. He is the creator. He is the sustainer of the universe. He is our life. And you and I should have a healthy, God-centered fear of him. Whenever you come to the Bible, it is very clear that the only ones who are true God-fearers are the believers, the ones who believe in God, believe in Christ. They are what the Bible would call Christians or true believers or true worshipers or saints, the redeemed, the born again, those who have been raised from the dead, spiritually speaking. They are transformed into new creatures in Christ. Christianity starts with a healthy fear of God. Remember the thief on the cross? It says in Luke chapter 23, one of the criminals that was hanging there blasphemed God and said, if you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other criminal, the other thief there answered and rebuked him saying, do you not even fear God seeing that you are under the same condemnation? And you know the rest of the story. There was one thief who was saved and there was one that was lost. The one that was saved is the one who feared God. The occupants of heaven are described many times, in fact, as those that fear God. In Revelation chapter 11, in verse 15, it says this, Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sat there with, sat before God on their thrones fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, listen to what they said. We give thanks to you, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and the one who was and the one who is to come, because you have taken your great power and have reigned. The nations were angry and your wrath has come. The time of the dead that they should be judged has come. And that you should reward your servants and the prophets and the saints and those who fear your name, small and great. And John is not making a distinction between the servants and the prophets and the saints and the ones who fear God. He is saying that the servants and the prophets and the saints, both small and great, are the ones who fear God. Occupants of heaven are known as those who fear God. And by the way, if you truly are a God-fearer, then you are one who will build your house on the rock. The Bible even says that those that are wise are the ones that build their house on the rock. And Jesus is talking about this in Matthew chapter 7, and he's talking about you building your house upon the foundation, which is Christ, the gospel, trusting in God and Christ alone for your salvation. In Matthew 7, 24, it says, Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rains descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against the house. And it did not fall for it was founded on the rock, which refers to Christ. 
But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them, he will be likened to a foolish man who builds his house on the sand. And the rains descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house and it fell and great was its fall. The distinguishing mark between the wise man and the foolish man is found in the words that Jesus gave. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, he's the wise man. He's the wise man. The one who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them, he's the foolish man. Wisdom, as we'll see in a few moments in the book of James, is not knowledge only. It's not just having the facts. It's not being academic or scholastic. It is actually the ability to apply what God's word says. It's to hear it and to do it. This wisdom. Matthew 24 tells us not only are the wise the ones who build their lives upon the rock, but also the wise are the ones who watch for the Lord to return. In Matthew 24, 42, it says, Watch therefore, for you do not know the hour of your Lord's coming, but know this. That if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would have come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, also you be ready, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master made ruler over his household to give him food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will so find doing. In other words, the wise man not only builds his house upon the rock, but the wise man watches for the return of Christ. And also the wise man is prepared. In Matthew 25, verse 1 and 2, we have the parable of the ten virgins. Here Jesus is teaching proper preparation for the return of Christ. In Matthew 25, 1, it says, Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom, Five of them were wise and five of them were foolish. The wise are the ones who are prepared. They have oil in their lamps, hence they have the Holy Spirit. They have the salvation that is in Christ. The ones that are foolish are the ones that are not prepared. They do not have the Holy Spirit. They are not prepared. They are not saved and ready for the return of Jesus Christ. Wise men build their house upon the rock. Wise men watch for the return of Christ. And wise men are prepared for the return of of Jesus when he comes back. Now this is the consistent testimony of scripture. In fact, it is taught all throughout scripture that the wise man or the one who possesses wisdom is the Christian. He's the Christian. You can be the most elite, educated, degreed professor in any of the most major well-known universities in the world and still not have wisdom. You can have a lot of knowledge and know a lot of things and not have wisdom. We even use the word common sense today, but I'm not talking about that necessarily. I'm talking about biblical wisdom. The wisdom that guides you in your life, it guides you in your marriage, it guides you in your job, it guides you in your personal relationship, it guides you in your personal one-on-one -on -one relationship with God, it guides you in defeating sin and dealing with temptation, it guides you in the test of life. This is the biblical wisdom we're talking about. And in the text we have here before us, there are three points that we've 
looked at in our church, and I'm just going to go through them briefly this afternoon. And the first is the singularity of wisdom, and it's found in verse 13, if you'll notice it with me. Verse 13 of James 3. James introduces this topic by asking you the question, who is wise and understanding among you? Now, the word wise here is the word sophos. You hear the name Sophia in that. It simply means wisdom. But biblical wisdom is not man-centered. Biblical wisdom is God-centered or theocentric. In other words, this wisdom is not something that you accumulate by just gaining knowledge that man teaches. This kind of wisdom is centered in on God and his character and his word and his purposes. As I told you earlier, it's not just scholastic training or learning. It is more than that. In the Jewish context especially, they understood what biblical wisdom was. After all, they have the Old Testament wisdom literature, right? That we often go back to time and time again in the Psalms and Proverbs. And here in those texts, what we find is, is that wisdom is not just accumulation of facts. It is the ability to apply what God's word says, a synonym of biblical wisdom is the word skill or skillful. It is more than just having knowledge of something. It is the ability to apply it. It would be like someone having the knowledge to take apart an appliance, but the only one who can actually do it is the one who has the skill to do it. The difference is clearly wisdom, the ability to apply it. Then there's the word understanding in this question that James gives us. And this word, epistemon, we get the word epistemology from, from it. This has the idea of thoroughly understanding something or thoroughly knowing something. Now, we have to admit this, that wisdom can be only accumulated and practiced if you have the knowledge, right? You do need the knowledge and you do need the understanding. It is important for you not only to, to have wisdom, but it is important for you to know what you're supposed to know. And that goes back to having a working knowledge of God, a working knowledge of Scripture, a working knowledge of what the Bible says in every area of life. I think uh, Paul Washer was right whenever he said that whenever you come to a church, one of the first things you should preach as a pastor is the character of God. Because it becomes the foundation upon which wisdom is based. Once you know theology proper, and then you advance out beyond that to theology and wisdom, which is knowing the word of God and applying those things you learn in scripture, then your understanding is more than academic. It becomes wise, it becomes wise. He asked in verse 13, who is wise and who is understanding among you? Well, the conclusion is very simple. If you followed my thoughts so far, the only one who is wise and the only one who is understanding is the believer, the Christian. Now, I would want to add one footnote to that, and that is this, is that you can still be a Christian and not be very wise. And the reason why is because you may be a lazy Christian. You may be a Christian who doesn't devote himself to the time necessary to learn the word of God. I mean, if you and I are going to be wise as God expects us to be wise and be able to live in the world we live in, which is a fallen, confused world, then you need to have biblical wisdom. And that comes by a devotion to and a discipline in reading, studying, and meditating on the word of God. You need to be like Charles Haddon Spurgeon said on one occasion that whenever someone pricks you with a needle, you bleed a Bible verse. Because you are so filled with the word of God that every thought you have is saturated with biblical thoughts. 
I think it was John MacArthur who said that if you want to know if you are filled with the Holy Spirit, and how to know that is this, is whenever you have an opportunity to respond to something and you don't have time to think about it, but your response is biblical, then you're filled with the scripture. And we should, show, we should so be that way, right? In fact, one of the synonyms of being filled with the Holy Spirit, according to Colossians 3.13, is to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly with all, here it is, wisdom. That's how it starts. I mean, it doesn't happen automatically, although I think all of us would probably love the possibility that you could lay your head on this at night and absorb it, right? I mean, how wonderful that would be. I can't tell you how many nights I've gone to sleep listening to sermons, and I can't tell you also how many nights I've gone to sleep listening to sermons and then wake up in the morning and not remember anything that I heard. It takes a little more effort than that, doesn't it? And as a believer, even though we have the resources available to us by the Holy Spirit and the Word of God, we must be careful to discipline ourselves or we can be a Christian who has the Holy Spirit and still not be living wise in a fallen world. So there's the singularity of wisdom. It is the believer, the Christian alone Who is the answer to the question? Who is wise and understanding among you? It is the believer. It is the Christian who disciplines himself to know and understand and apply the word of the living God. Secondly, the sense of wisdom. The sense of wisdom is also found in verse 13. And what I mean by that is the perception of wisdom. Unlike what many believe today that wisdom is, they would say that, you know, as long as you gather together the experts and they all sit up there as talking heads and tell you everything you need to know that we have a body of wisdom here. That's not what the Bible says, how you identify wisdom. Wisdom is not just checking off the facts. Wisdom is not the ability to pass the test, academically speaking. Wisdom is good behavior and living out practically what the word of God says. Look at it in verse 13. When he answers the question in verse 13, who is wise and understanding among you? Here's what James says. Let him show it. Let him show it. Builds upon the same idea that James had in chapter 2, verse 14. Faith without works is what? Dead. You can claim all day that you believe in Jesus. You can claim all day that you're a follower of Christ and a follower of God and a follower of his word. But if you don't have works, your faith is useless, meaningless. It's not real. So it is here in this text. He's basically telling us that wisdom is not seen by what you know. It's seen by what you do. You know if you're wise if you have, according to James 3.13, good conduct. Good conduct. The word translated here, conduct, refers to your everyday life. It comes from a Greek word that means the turning about. In other words, as you go about in life. The old word the King James used to use is the word conversation. It meant not just what you say, but your lifestyle, how you live, your behavior, your deportment, your conduct, your mode of life. So what James is telling us here is that if you want to show wisdom, then you you prove it by what you do and how you live, how you interact with every day in life, what you think, how you act, how you react is biblical wisdom. He says in verse 13 that you show it by your good conduct 
that his works or his deeds are done with meekness of wisdom. The word meekness is really better understood as gentleness or even humility. Because what is behind this term is really a loaded, loaded thought. And that is this, is that whenever you and I are truly applying what God's word says, it should be done in the context of true biblical humility. And that humility expresses itself in gentleness to those around us. And the reason why it does this is because, first of all, you recognize that you only are who you are and what you are by the grace of God. Right? You are alive right now and haven't become an object of his wrath because God has been gracious to you and has saved you by his mercy and his grace and his long suffering. And so you and I should express that in humble obedience to Christ. Therefore, whenever we see people reacting in a harsh way or in anger, we respond in gentleness because we're responding like Christ would have responded. That's the whole point of it. That's what he means by that. He says, if you want to see true biblical wisdom in someone, watch how they act. Watch how they respond in a godless, hostile world around us in humility because they have been truly saved by God, by Christ. Now let's move a little further now to the source of wisdom. And this is where we really camped this morning at our church. Now, I'm not able to finish the rest of the text because we didn't finish it this morning. So we'll finish it next Lord's Day, and maybe next time I come, I'll share some thoughts on that. But I just want to begin by talking about it. You'll get the sense of it as we work our way through it. Here in James, he's talking about the two kinds of wisdom. There are two kinds of wisdom talked about in the Bible. And according to James, there's the wisdom that comes from below... And there's the wisdom that comes from above. Now, when he talks about the wisdom from above, he is talking about the wisdom that comes from heaven or from God or from the source of his word, which comes from God. When he talks about the word below, he's primarily talking about earthly things, uh, below from heaven, if you will, down here where we are. But as we'll see a little later on, because he characterizes this kind of wisdom as demonic, that he's going deeper than here only he's going actually into hell itself that the wisdom that is of the earth or of man is not from God it is not from above in fact it is from below it is earthly it is demonic it is satanic it is out of hell itself now to begin with the first list he gives here or the first um, wisdom that he refers to is the wisdom that is not from above Look at it in verse 15. He says, This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, and demonic. Now, if we were to give a definition of that, biblically speaking, so that we understand exactly what kind of wisdom he's talking about, then what we could define it like is this. It is how one lives his life based upon the principles, beliefs, and philosophies, and lies that are applied in everyday thought, action, and reaction. Let me read that again. It is how one lives his life. This is the wisdom that is down here, not the wisdom from above. It is how one lives his life based upon the principles, beliefs, and philosophies, and I add lies, applied in everyday thought, action, reaction, or you could even add the word attitude. 
That's the wisdom down here we're talking about. That's the definition, a working definition of it. The second wisdom is stated in verse 17. But the wisdom that is from above is pure, peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy, good fruits, without partiality, and without hypocrisy. Now, right out of the gate here, you should automatically see that this is not of this world. For someone to respond and to react this way doesn't come from here. This is not natural to the fallen world. You don't have natural, peaceable people. Natural, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy, good fruits, without partiality, without hypocrisy. That is not from this planet. It does not come from here. It is from above. And a working definition of that kind of wisdom would be this, how one lives his life based upon the principles, beliefs, and theology and truths of Scripture as defined in the Bible. They are absolutely polar opposites. The wisdom from above is nowhere close, not even in the same universe as the wisdom that is here on this earth or the wisdom from below. One is from the earth, one is from heaven. One is from demons, the other is from God. One is based on lies, the other is based on truth. One leads to sin and death, the other leads to righteousness and life. One is the proof of your lostness from salvation, and the other is the proof of your conversion. And James tells us that there are two sources of wisdom. One comes directly from God himself. The other comes from hell itself, from the fallen, cursed earth. And here we have it. So to begin to look at that, and we'll just kind of look at the first one today, the wisdom that is from below, the wisdom that many of us hear daily now in our culture. And to understand it, you need to look at its motives and its marks and its manifestations. First of all, notice the motives of the wisdom from below. That is found in verse 14. But to begin to understand how James reads this, let me just read verse 13 again. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in meekness of wisdom. But in contrast to that, if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your heart, do not boast and lie against the truth. Now, the key to this verse is where James says, in your hearts. He's talking about what moves you, your motives or your motivation, what causes you to do the things you do, what causes you to think the way you think, what causes you to act the way you do or react the way you do, the motivation, what moves your heart. Now, the unregenerate heart, the lost heart, we all know is evil. The Bible says, in fact, in Jeremiah, that the heart of the lost person is desperately wicked. It's very wicked. According to Genesis chapter 6 and verse 5, that same evil heart can be evil not only sometimes, but evil continually. You remember what it says in Genesis 6, 5? Then the Lord saw the wickedness of man who was great on the earth, that every intent of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. This is the product of the unregenerate, fallen heart that is desperately wicked. 
And here James identifies the heart of the lost one as one who has bitter envy and self-seeking. As I told you, this wisdom comes from below. It doesn't come from above. It doesn't square with what heaven teaches and what God teaches. It is from hell. Its source is demonic. But look at the word bitter envy for a moment. Bitter envy. The word bitter is a Greek word, pikros. It's uh, pikron in the actual Greek text. It has the idea of being pointed or sharp or prickly or pungent. It was used also in the Septuagint to refer to wild vines or even a bitter gourd that would produce excessively bitter and acrid fruit. Uh, and also it could be poisonous. Uh, you all understand whenever you talk about someone who's bitter, right? They're, they're the kind of person that is uh, harsh, sharp, angry. Uh, they're cutting in their words, destructive. Uh, they can bring dis- disunity and division Uh, They have a very, very difficult time expressing any kind of love and grace and humility. They are bitter. And that's what the word is here in this text. But he adds the other word to it, the word envy. But that is the Greek word zelos. We get the word zeal or zealot from it. And what it does is it brings fuel to the bitterness. He's not only bitter, but he's zealous about his bitterness. He's motivated to be jealous and envy and angry and heart and hurtful and harmful in his words. He makes war upon the good of others. He attacks other people and any good in them. He is zealous about that. Now, zeal can be good. I mean, you can have good zeal. You can be zealous, uh, zealous for God, zealous for his word, zealous for his name. Even Jesus was full of zeal whenever he came into the temple, right? And he ran out the money changers. He was zealous for the house of God. And you and I can be that way. But this same Greek word can be used in a bad way, especially when you add an adjective to it like bitter. uh, Someone who is zealous about being that way. In fact, in James chapter 3 verse 1, you have um, the, the reference to what James refers to about those who were seeking to promote themselves in a teaching office. And they were zealous to be in a position of authority and zealous to be in a position of teaching. And he warns them about doing that in James 3.1 because you're going to go into greater judgment. But sometimes there's a temptation, even among believers, to have carnal ambition and to seek things that are not their own and the the desire to be better than the next guy or, or great in the kingdom, if you will, just like the disciples were on one occasion. You remember that? Whenever they were sitting with Jesus and they said, you know, whenever your kingdom comes, give us the opportunity to be seated on your right hand or your left hand. I mean, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? Uh, They were zealous, but zealous for the wrong things. And here you have an example of what it means to be zealous about being hurtful and harmful. Uh, It goes to the whole idea of an ego trip of zealousness. So much so that you will harm whoever is in your way to get what you want. And that feeds into the next characteristic of this kind of wisdom from the world. It is self-seeking. It's not only bitter and zealous in its bitterness, but also it is self-seeking. Or it could be translated selfish ambition. The Greek word erethia is a common word to refer to contentiousness or extreme self-centeredness or extreme selfishness. It originally in its root form referred to the spinning of thread or the sewing of thread 
for hire. And what that meant was is that you were basically making garments for hire. It later became known as someone who was working or undertaking a project for their own self-promotion. So it became a word to be understood as those that are seeking their own benefit or their own self-interest. It also had the idea of running for political office later that would be self-promoting. You would canvass the public and to promote self among the public so that you could have a higher position. Uh, That's where it really became known for. And in that context, there was no room for anybody else. There was no uh, looking at others more important than your own. It was all about self-promotion. Genuine humility was gone. Humble attitudes were missing. Selfishness was the primary dominating theme behind that. You were looking for personal advantage, whatever you could accomplish, no matter what kind of bad things you had to do to accomplish it, you did it. If you had to cheat, lie, and steal to get your way and to promote yourself, then that's what was behind it. This, by the way, this self-seeking attitude or this selfish ambition that is discussed here in the text is one that's going to determine the lostness or the saved condition of many in the future. In Romans chapter 2, verse 8, it says that God will be able to determine the validity of your saving faith on whether or not you are a self-centered person. It even says that in Romans 2, 8, but to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey in righteousness, indignation and wrath are theirs. God will know whether or not you're his or not just based upon your self-centeredness. Also, Paul said this, that this kind of selfish ambition was a product of the flesh. It was a product and work of the flesh in Galatians 5, 19. He says the works of the flesh are evident which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath. And then he lists selfish ambitions. Paul warned about that among the believers in the book of Philippi or the church at Philippi in Philippians 2, 3. He said, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. Even as believers, we are warned and commanded not to act in a self-centered, selfish way. You say, how does that flesh itself out? Well, if you read the rest of Philippians 2, 3, it'll tell you exactly how to flesh that out. It says, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. There it is. If you want to know if you're not self-centered and pursuing self-ambition, then you're the kind of person that looks to others and considers others and their needs more important than yourself. Then he gave that great illustration, did he not, of Jesus leaving heaven and coming to earth and setting aside the glory that he had with the Father, taking on the form of a man, becoming a slave and dying at the cross? What better example of true humility, true true love for others, and one that was not self-centered, which was Christ. These two motives of bitter envy and selfish ambition are the perfect description of the world's wisdom today. That's exactly the way it is today. Everything is about promoting self, is it not? It's all about making sure you're number one and everybody knows that you're number one. I was told this past week at our church, uh, 
a young man that actually runs his own barbershop told me that uh, there was a barbershop down in Columbia area that had a station where you would get your haircut. Then it had a selfie station where you could move from your haircut, move to the second station and take a picture of yourself. I mean, how wonderful. Like we need any more of that in you today, right? I told our church this morning that I have a friend of mine who sent me a picture of this beautiful scenery. He went down to the Caribbean and he said, I want to show you this. And he had his face right in the middle of it. And I said, I don't want to see your face. I'd rather see the scenery. But, you know, everybody has to take selfies nowadays, right? We got to make sure everybody knows that we were there and we have selfies. And that's where we are. I mean, we are an incredible illustration of one of the most self-centered self-loving cultures in the history of the world. Now, this past week, I did something I don't usually ever do. I read an article from Psychology Today. I usually stay far from that magazine, but I looked up the word narcissistic or narcissism, which is the word for loving of self. And I thought it would be interesting to find if there's any interesting information about that. Well, Psychology Today had an article that I found absolutely alarming because it's absolutely right. And I wouldn't normally say that. But whenever I read the article, the short title of it was this. Here is a short list of social damage that narcissists are likely to cause. In other words, if you have narcissists in your culture, this is what kind of things can happen. Here's the list. First, cheating, deception, lying will become the new normal, most notably in education, business, politics, and the media. Then they said crime will become rampant and growing in all major cities. Riots would be motivated across a range of left to right ideologies and will seem to increase. Fathers in large numbers will abandon their children Marriage will be declining. More couples are deliberately childless. Widespread alcohol, drugs, sex, and other addictions will increase. And the number of people who contribute little to the society and will require more services to help them and support them. Narcissistic hostility leads to calling people who believe differently vile names and shunning and magnifying social alienation. The divisive diminishing of others for bad beliefs and behaviors is aggravated when narcissists hypocritically do the same bad things and excuse the wrongdoing of those in their own in-group. And then people are making more and more unrealistic demands on society and government to cater to their own perceived needs. Folks, that's where we are. We're just a full culture of narcissists. We might as well go around and hang a mirror in front of our face all day long because we love ourselves. And what's so sad about that is that's one problem that comes from the fallen human heart, naturally speaking. But what we're doing now is we're encouraging in our education system. We're encouraging in our politics. We're encouraging everywhere we go, no matter what you listen to, it's all about love of self. It's all about making sure that you are satisfied That you get what you want, even in child rearing, what Mark talked about earlier. I mean, you've heard of child-centered parenting? It's all about making sure the child is happy. The child is happy. Self-centered, narcissistic parenting. 
And what it produces is a population of delinquents who do not understand what authority is, how to submit to it, and they live and end up living in a life of crime. This article went on to say what the world needs is less self-centeredness and more personal emphasis on gratitude, work ethic, accomplishment, moral standards, character, and helpfulness to others. Hey, that's right, right? But there's only one way you're going to get that, is go back to the Judeo-Christian ethic. Go back to the Bible and digest it and live it. That's biblical wisdom. They also said and concluded, selfishness is our God. We worship ourselves. It causes suffering for everyone, including the narcissist. I thought that is profound. Maybe I need to read psychology today more often. They nailed it, did they not? They understand just by pure observation where this goes. This is hard to say, but it is true. That is the core and the center of our culture. And it is destroying people, society, businesses. One author said this, those whose lives are based on and motivated by human ungodly wisdom are inevitably self-centered. Living in a world in which their own personal ideas, desires, and standards are the measure of everything. Whatever and whoever serves those ends is considered good and friendly. Whatever and whoever threatens those ends is considered bad and an enemy. Those who are engulfed in such self-serving worldly wisdom resent anyone and anything that comes between them and their own personal objectives. He's right on target. Verse 14, look at the text again. James says, but if you have this kind of attitude and this kind of wisdom, and the, the if, by the way, is a first-class conditional sentence, which means he assumes it to be true, there must have been a group of people or some in the midst of the group of the church that he was writing to that were having some serious problems. Maybe some were not even truly converted, hence the reason why he addressed it in chapter 2, verse 14 of genuine faith having true works. And here again, he says, listen, if you don't have this kind of wisdom from above, but you have this earthly, sensual, demonic wisdom, there's a good, op- good possibility you're not even a true believer. That's what he's telling them there. He's asking them to look into this and to make sure of that. Look at verse 14 again. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, he says, don't boast and lie against the truth. Don't boast and lie against the truth. What does he mean by that? The word boast here is the Greek word that means put confidence in. And he's basically telling us this. For those who are saying that worldly wisdom is good, What you're doing is this. You're saying, I have confidence in what the world says. I have confidence in what man says. I have confidence in what they've come up with. Therefore, I'm going to follow that. And what you end up doing is lying against the truth or you deny the truth. The truth of God, the truth of his word. Whenever you boast and say, oh, no, I've got the information. I've had that happen a number of times where we've had opportunities to have teaching in classes and I've heard I've actually had someone tell me no I've got that I got that down pat you do really 
Everybody's got it, right? We all got it all squared away. We don't need to learn anymore. Uh, you know, the problem is today the church, as we'll see later on in the book of James, when it has become a friend of the world, we've got more of the world in the church than the church in the world. We are in, we're infatuated with the world and its wisdom. You know, one of the most challenging things with biblical counseling, and whenever you do this and you learn to practice this, where you're applying the biblical word of God to everyday life, and usually in a counseling session, what ends up happening is this. You have to spend the first few sessions untying the knots that have been tied by the worldly wisdom that has been embraced. Because the thinking is the total, total opposite of what the Bible says. And so you have to undo that for a number of sessions so that people begin to think biblically about where they are and what they're doing and why they're doing what they're doing. Jeremiah chapter 9 verse 23 says, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, let not the mighty man glory in his might, nor let the rich man glory in his riches. Jeremiah is saying the same things James is saying. Don't you boast about your wisdom. I mean, think about it just for a moment. Let's just put it in context. The men who claim to have all the wisdom today in the world, they claim to know so much, yet they've divorced themselves from the only one who has the knowledge. They say, you know what? This earth, this planet, this universe has been here for billions of years. And it took billions of years for us to finally show up here. And you have, over millions of years, finally climbed out of your cesspool and you became some kind of little fish thing with legs and then you crawled up and became something that flies and then you ended up becoming an ape somewhere along the way. And then here you are, smart and intelligent as you are. You know what the big problem with that is? They weren't there. They didn't see any of this. They made it up. It's all made up. I'll tell you who's, who was there. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's wisdom. And yet, so many today propound that they have all the answers and they have denied the very source of truth. It is impossible to have wisdom and to deny the one who made wisdom. And is wisdom. So don't boast in your wisdom against the truth. And one of the things I often hear today is, well, you know, the Bible's not scientific. Or the Bible doesn't have all the answers. And all of that kind of stuff that we hear today. Listen, the Bible has everything, and it says this, the Bible has everything that pertains to life and godliness. And frankly, I don't know what else there is. What else is there other than life and living a godly life? I don't know what else there is. And as far as all the rest of the stuff, I've been given the information that I need to know who created it, who sustains it, who keeps it, where it's going, where it's going to end. I have more information than I can possibly digest in an entire life. And yet, we don't spend the time necessary, do we? In gaining the wisdom that comes from the word of God. So don't lie against the truth. Don't claim to have the wisdom that the world has. And deny the very obvious truth that is in front of you. And this self-exaltation that we often hear today about so many who claim to have true wisdom. 
and human wisdom is the opposite of the truth of God's word. It is self-promotion, and really it is a shell game. We make ourselves out to be a little smarter than we really are, right? And even though I know many of us in here are smart, we're not that smart, all right? We're not. None of us are. We all have everything we have because God gave it to us. You have the intellect you have, the knowledge you have, the job you have, the talents you have, the gifts you have, the looks you have, the family you have, the breath you have because God gave it to you. By his grace, we are not what we often think we are. We are not so great and so wonderful. And we need to remind ourselves of that periodically. One person said, don't get upset when someone says hateful things about you because you're not that far, you're much far worse rather. You're much far worse. The world has its own set of values and its own wisdom. The world says, we understand man. He evolved from an ape, became an advanced animal from a clump of cells, and he can kill its babies in the womb, or it can euthanize its elderly when it's old. That's what the world says, especially if it's an inconvenience to you. God says, I understand man. He was created by me in my image. He fell into sin. I redeemed him by the sacrifice of my son. I freed him from his sin. His life was created at conception and is valuable to me. And his life is an honorable thing to me. I have decreed all of his days, all of his years, even into his elderly years. The world says you can live together and have sexual relations without being married so that you can determine whether or not you're compatible to live together. God says you must be married before you have sexual relations so that you, can, you do not sin against God and sin against one another and actually distort the purpose and the plan that God has for marriage. The world says marriage can be between a man and a woman, a man and a man, or a woman and a woman, and that a man and a man or a woman and a woman can raise a child in a home and a family, supposedly. God says marriage has always been between one man and one woman, and it is in the life of that context that children are produced and raised in the admonition of the Lord. And men with men and women with women is an abomination to God and will be judged. The world says worship whoever and whatever you want, whenever you want, just so long as you don't press your God on me. God says the, love the Lord your God and worship him only. He is the only true God and you must worship him as such and preach Christ to all the nations and see them converted to Jesus Christ. The world says man is basically good with a few exceptions. God says man is sinful with no exceptions. We could go on and on about that and show you more and more clear, obvious differences between the world and its wisdom and God's wisdom. But let's move on, lest we run out of time like we already have. It's marks, the second one. We see its motives is bitter envy and self-seeking, but now it's marks. Look at verse 15. The wisdom that does not descend from above. Now, we know from the phrase here in verse 15, does not descend from above, descend from above, refers to heaven and where God dwells. We know that because earlier in chapter 1, verse 17, it says every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights. So he's talking about God. The point is, is that the wisdom that is here on this planet does not come from God. That should be enough to tell us to stay away, right? He goes on and says that that 
Wisdom that is not from above is earthly, sensual, and demonic. Look at the word earthly. It's the word epigenes. And the word epi is upon the word gay or genes is the word earth or land. It basically means upon the earth. He's talking about wisdom that is from here, from this planet. It's another way of saying that it's limited, it's, it's uh, confined, it's boxed in, it's earth bound. Man can't go beyond this planet. He can't get beyond, he can't go into the past and see anything. He can't go into the future and see anything. He is here for his short little vapor that appears for a little while and it's gone. It's limited. It's finite. It comes from an unregenerate heart, unregenerate humanity. It's present only. He can theorize. He can discover some things. He can accomplish some things. But his wisdom is short-sighted, limited, finite, and does not possess the infinite, eternal wisdom of God. It's earthly. As one author said this, this wisdom is motivated by pride, selfish ambition, arrogance, self-centeredness, self-interest, and self-aggrandizement. It spawns a society whose watchwords are, do your own thing, have your own way, look out for number one. It pervades philosophy, education, politics, economics, sociology, psychology, and every other dimension and aspects of our contemporary human life. It's right here. It's bound here on this planet. It's all it has is what it sees. And then the second one, he says it's sensual, or your translation may say natural. The word, the Greek word, sukikikos, is a word that comes from the word suke, which we get the word soul from. It's not talking about the immaterial spiritual world. There's another word for pneuma, for spiritual. The word sukikikos is a word that refers to something that is not spiritual. It's like the instincts of man compared to the animal world or even better it has to do with the affections the the desires the fundamental natural affections and desires of man that's why it's translated natural in some context in some some biblical text it's used like that over in first corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14 where it says the natural man does not understand the things of god in other words he's natural he's earthy he's limited he's finite he's stuck here on this planet he's not spiritual he's not raised from spiritual death he doesn't know he doesn't understand he doesn't comprehend because he is natural so everything that he does and everything that he wants and all the quote wisdom that he comes up with is based upon the fulfillments of his own appetites his own desires his own wants his own ambitions his own self-centered love so it's earthbound and it's unspiritual. But then the third description that he gives to us is that it's demonic. It's demonic. Now this is really an adjective form of this word, which is the only time it's used like this in the New Testament. It really could be understood as demon-like. Uh, some commentators believe that it has to do with the nature of the wisdom, that it's demon-like, hell-like, satanic-like. But also it may have reference to its very origin. I mean, if you look at the New Testament, how many times does Paul and others in the New Testament refer to our fight against the demonic world, right? We fight against that. And they come against us, as the Apostle Paul says, attacking knowledge and strongholds. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1 says, The Spirit expressly says, 
that in the latter times, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. These doctrines of demons in this context are precisely religious. They forbid to marry and forbid to eat certain foods. By that, making someone feel like they are appeasing their God. They're doctrines of demons. And this wisdom that comes from the world is demonic. I want to tell you the truth. If you want to get yourself in trouble in most churches today, say this. Most of what you hear and read in the world of psychology and psychotherapy is demonic. You're going to get yourself in trouble? Oh, yeah. You'll get some emails back on that one. We have been so seduced into believing just because it has a lot of good things in it that everything's fine with it. And folks, there's danger in that darkness. Great danger. For many, many, many centuries, we never had such a school of thought. And we did so much better. Now we have a whole lot of this and society is falling apart. We have more counseling and counselors and in, in therapy groups and they're everywhere yet the mess remains the mess remains so we find the motives the marks and then one last thing the manifestation is found here in verse 16 this is what happens whenever you embrace this worldly wisdom that is earthly sensual and demonic look at verse 16 for where envy and self-seeking are the motives where they exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. That's an amazing statement. It's telling us where the wisdom of the world is embraced, where it is sought and where it is practiced, confusion and every evil thing are there. The word translated here, confusion, Akatastasia. It's a word that means unstable or tumult, confusion, as is translated here, commotion, uncertainty is another word. It's translated in James 1 8 about the double minded man who is unstable. That's the same word. In James 3 8, it talks about the tongue and it says it is an unruly evil the word unruly is the same word this word for confusion means it's the opposite of peace it's the opposite of tranquility it's the opposite of quietness and order you end up with a world of confusion i mean what better word to characterize where we are in our culture right We've adopted the wisdom of the world, we've rejected the wisdom of God, and we end up in an absolute total world of confusion. No one knows what up is anymore, or down is anymore, or what right is, or what wrong is. And you're told to believe things that are obviously not true, standing in front of your face. And then the last one is evil thing. He says, every evil thing is there. The word evil, polos is the Greek word. There are a couple of other words in the New Testament that refer to evil. Kakos is one that means basically bad. Then there's porneros, which means wicked or evil, malevolent. This word polos is a little bit more descriptive. It's the word for foul, corrupt, decaying, um, 
depraved, worthless. And so he's the, the worst of the worst, if you will. The bottom rung of evil. The kind of evil that smells bad even. That kind of evil. It has that putrid green chloric acid coming off of it. That kind of evil. But also the word thing caught my attention as I was reading through the text because there's a number of ways to say the word thing in the Greek text, but this one's a word pragma. We get our word pragmatic from it. Uh, What works. Uh, It refers to trades or schemes or accomplishments. So what he's saying is, is that wherever this kind of wisdom is incorporated and believed and practiced, there is confusion Tumult, uncertainty, no order, commotion, no certainty whatsoever, and evil, every evil practice is put in place. Every evil practice is put in place. So you end up with all kinds of things that are done for the name of the advancement of humanity, for the advancement of family and marriage and church and whatever else, and it's all done with human wisdom. The Bible says that every evil practice exists in that context. It's not a good outcome, is it? It's not a good manifestation whatsoever. And we need to understand that the Bible teaches us that man's wisdom is foolishness to God and God's wisdom is foolishness to man. And if we're going to follow the right kind of wisdom and have the right kind of wisdom, we need to follow God's word that is his revelation of himself and the revelation of his knowledge to us, given to us here in this text. From Genesis to Revelation, yes, even the book of Leviticus offers wisdom. Every single word. What What does Paul tell Timothy? That this book that we have in our hands is the very breath of God. Every word. And so it is profitable it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction and righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. You want to be wise? You want to be wise to live in a fallen world? You want to know what's right and what's wrong, what's up, what's down, what's man, what's woman? Read the scripture. Amen? Read the scripture. Well, as we take our time now and turn our attention to the Lord's Supper, which is an important practice the Lord gave to us to observe in obedience to him, I would like to read a text to us found in the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews. I'm going to read from verse 11 down through verse 14. This table that we celebrate here today is a way to remember the perfect sacrifice that our Lord Jesus Christ gave. He lived a perfect life, completely obedient to the word of God, never sinning, ever. Thereby was the perfect spotless lamb who could die in our place and receive the full wrath of God as our substitute. And the Bible discusses this great and perfect sacrifice given to us in Hebrews chapter 9 verse 11 it says but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands that is to say not of this creation and not through the blood of goats and calves 
but through his own blood, he entered the holy places once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those would have been sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more would the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Christ is our perfect sacrifice who died in our place so that we could be made righteous in his sight, be forgiven of all of our sins, all of our transgressions. His blood was spilt in a graphic way to show his life being poured out for us. The Bible also warns us as believers, even as a church, to take the Lord's Supper seriously. It tells us that you can take the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. There's two ways that can be done. First, you can be a believer who's living in sin. There's a couple of ways that can happen. Number one, you can be in a state of unrepentant sin in your life that the Spirit of God is convicting you of, but you have not set it aside and turned away from it. It may be one of those private sins that you harbor that only you know about, and you need to repent of that before you take the Lord's Supper. And then also, even as a Christian, you can be in a local church and not be baptized. And if you're not baptized as a believer, you don't need to take the Lord's Supper. You say, how can you say that? Because the first commandment that was given specifically to the believer was to be baptized. And there's no reason why, no reason why, a believer should not be baptized. They should be a follower of Christ and fully obedient in the very first step of obedience, which is baptism. But then also you could be here today and not even know Christ. In this crowd, it's easy for that to happen. You can be here and be a church attender or even a church member and not be truly saved. And if you don't believe you're saved, I would encourage you not to take the Lord's Supper. And parents, you need to be mindful of your children. You know where they are in their spiritual journey and where they are in their confession for Christ. They look to you for guidance for this. And you practice what you know you need to practice regarding the Lord's Supper for that. It's important to us. It's important to you. It'll be important to them. And they'll understand that. So let's pray together. I'll give you opportunity also to pray silently. And then we'll take the Lord's Supper. Our Father, we thank you for the clarity of your word. We thank you, God, for the wisdom you give us in your word to live in a fallen world. And Lord, we thank you for your love for us that is eternal, that started long ago before anything was created. You set your love on us. You decided to have a relationship with us. And you came in the perfect son, Jesus Christ, living a complete life of obedience to the law, and then you died on a cross, a violent, horrible death for us. In our place, what we deserved, you took upon yourself. The full fury of the wrath of God was laid upon your son. 
And Lord, we give you praise for that. We give you thanks for that. We will forever in all eternity praise your name for the great work of redemption that you have done for us. And Lord, you give us this table today to remember what you have done, the body and the blood, the perfect body that was given to Christ to live a life of righteousness so that we could actually live here and be saved. And the blood that was shed, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And your blood is perfect blood, blood that was never stained by evil, blood that was able to be shed so that we could have eternal life. And we give you praise for that. And Lord, today that if there's any sin or any wicked way in us, that even our minds and our hearts have not revealed to us, we pray, Father, that you would cleanse us, that you would restore a right heart in us, that you would make us pure. And Lord, we pray that we would honor you in all that we do and that you would be glorified in our remembrance of this table. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.